1: We come here to begin a new era—an era of real promise. In this meeting for these days, we have put our people first, and we have thought about tomorrow. We are bound together by geography, by history, by culture, but most important now, by shared values. We have tried to give life to these values at this summit by agreeing to create a free trade area throughout our hemisphere, to bring together our nations to improve the quality of life for our peoples, and to strengthen and make permanent the march of democracy. This is more than words. This is a commitment to deeds.
2: Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And that was President Bill Clinton at the closing ceremony of the first Summit of the Americas, which he convened in Miami in 1994. As you heard there, it was supposed to mark the beginning of a new era of cooperation across the Americas. In fact, all it started was a tradition of holding these summits every few years, which generally didn't achieve much. That free trade area of the Americas that went nowhere, and the US hasn't hosted another one, until now, with President Biden holding his own summit of the Americas in just a few days' time in Los Angeles. The guest list, though, is still in doubt. To be honest, so are those shared values President Clinton talked about back in '94. I'm going to talk about all that later with Juan Pablo Spinetto, who runs all of Bloomberg's economic and government coverage in Latin America. After that, we also have a chat with one of the authors of a major new report about where we get our human capital from. It's not where you might think, it turns out. But first, here's our Mexico City-based reporter, Maya Averbuch, to explain why plans for this summit are in such a mess. I in
3: President Biden. It's the momento de un gran viraje es el momento de iniciar una etapa nueva en las relaciones de los países de América y va a ser un ejemplo para el mundo
4: was Andrés Manuel López Obrador, also known as AMLO, the popular and populous president of Mexico, expressing his support for a new era of cooperation throughout the Americas. In fact, improving relations across the region is a key objective for President Joe Biden, too. He needs the support of Mexico and its Latin American neighbors to prevent the persistent arrival of migrants at the U.S.'s southern border from becoming a political problem. However, a meeting of the region's leaders next week in Los Angeles is looking less like an opportunity to mend fences and more like a political fiasco. The U.S. is hosting the Summit of the Americas for the first time since the summit's founding in 1994. And on the eve of the event, not all of the would-be participants have accepted their invitations. At the top of the list of holdouts is AMLO, who has threatened to boycott the event unless the U.S. also invites Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. For now, inviting the heads of those three nations is a non-starter for the Biden administration. The standoff is exposing the fault lines across the Americas, including a desire by leaders in the region for the U.S. to stop imposing its political vision. Here's Andres Rosenthal, a Mexican career diplomat.
1: The history uh, goes back to 1994 when the U.S. decided to convene the first uh, Summit of the Americas, basically with the clear intention of trying to gauge interest in the region for an integration, an economic integration of the Americas, somewhat similar to the European Union. Uh, it was not successful. There were too many differing views regarding the possibilities of integration, as I'm sure they still there still are today. It's the first time that the United States hosts the Summit of the Americas since 1994. It was clear, to my mind at least, that this was an attempt by President Biden to reaffirm uh, U.S. interest in the region. Uh, notwithstanding all of the other distractions going on, and to be able to bring the leadership of the region to Los Angeles in order to discuss issues such as migration, uh, economic competitiveness, climate change.
4: But we haven't even gotten to the part where leaders can discuss crucial issues. First, Latin America's leaders need to show up. Camilo says if Biden does not treat all countries equally, he will send his foreign affairs minister to the summit, but the Mexican president himself will stay home. Meanwhile, other countries have said they refuse to go. Cuba's president said he would not go even if he did get an invite. Guatemala has made a fuss over U.S. criticism of its justice system. And Honduras' president said she would not go if other leaders were left out. The question for Biden is whether a lackluster turnout is enough or if the boycott by some nations is one snub too many. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, a political scientist and migration scholar at George Mason University, says the hubbub is a sign of the loss of U.S. influence in the region. And it comes at a tricky time for the Biden administration. The U.S. midterm elections are in November, and they will determine whether Biden's Democratic Party retains its majority in Congress. The U.S. is concerned in Latin America as whether Mexico and its neighbors will help block migration and boost trade. But Amlo sees standing up to Biden as a winning political strategy that could help his own party in the upcoming Mexican regional elections and later on. The, the, the current administration is thinking about midterm elections and also uh, stability in terms of diplomacy and a hemispheric stability. It's important for for the Democrats in a very complicated electoral process that will probably not result in big, in a big victory for them, on the contrary. So at this point, also migration, it's, It's at the center, probably, of the discussion, considering that a number of people from different parts of the world start a journey in different parts of South America, and we have the problems in Central America that have been magnified because of COVID-19 pandemic. The pandemic has been a time of big change in Latin America, and many of the leaders who have been invited to the summit have never met one another. In these two years, Chile elected a 35-year-old leftist, Colombians voted in a first-round election for a guerrilla fighter-turned-mayor, and Brazil lost its love for the conservative and brash Jair Bolsonaro. Honduras' former president got extradited to the U.S. on drug trafficking charges, a huge fall from grace. And Mexicans cemented their support for AMLO, who has frequently criticized the U.S. for its intervention in Mexico's security and energy affairs while calling for more U.S. investment at a time when economic recovery has been too slow. Rosenthal, the diplomat, says the embarrassing debate over whether or not to attend the summit could have been avoided.
1: The U.S. government, the White House, uh, has mismanaged this issue because they should have foreseen this from the very beginning. And they should have made whatever efforts needed to be made, either not to hold the summit if they weren't going to invite some of the countries uh, of the region, or to find some solution before they, it became a, a political hot potato.
4: The Biden administration's objection to hosting Venezuela, Nicaragua and Cuba centers on its characterization of those countries as undemocratic. To be sure, though, the U.S. has negotiated with the countries on its no-fly list in the past. Vanessa Rubio Marquez, who once worked in Mexico's foreign affairs ministry, remembers what it looked like when the United States was just another participant.
5: I was in that very historic moment in which uh, President Castro uh, shook hands with, back then, President Obama.
4: That was in 2015 in Panama at another Summit of the Americas. So I guess uh, what what, uh, President Manuel López Obrador had in mind was the possibility of having once again all of the countries of the
5: hemisphere uh, invited to the summit. But of course, in the context of of this very divided uh, Latin America, what uh, has been happening is that countries have sided one way or the other.
2: So we can get a bit more context now from Juan Pablo Spinetto, Bloomberg Managing Editor for Economics and Government, Maya's boss. Uh, JP, thanks for coming on Stephanomics. Um, we've had some of the history in that piece, but the, the plasma on the guest list for these summits has always been a problem, hasn't it?
3: Always. And thanks for the invitation, Stephanie. Um, You know, the issue of Cuba has been for decades very sensitive, obviously. And you have guessed that the White House thought about it before, but it didn't. And uh, and it showed up and exploded when AMLO decided to play politics and say, OK, if you don't invite these guys, Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua, I'm basically not going to go to this meeting, which put the White House in a very tough position.
2: When I was looking back at some of the the sort of colourful history of some of these meetings, even before the summit of the Americas, there was a there was a North South summit in Cancun in Mexico in 1981, which which famously also caused all the same issues around uh, whether or not Castro could come. So, d- remind me what happened there?
3: Exactly, it happened the same as you know now. It, that was 40 years ago. Ronald Reagan was going to Cancun that put Mexico in a tight spot because they needed to decide what to do with Cuba. Mexico has always been very friendly to to Cuba during the PRI years. And so the solution they came up was, uh, okay, we're not going to invite Fidel Castro, but we're going to invite him a a few days before to a meeting in Cozumel. So the president at the time, Lopez Portillo, (laughs) called Fidel to make the invitation and he tried travel by ship, by a Navy yacht uh, from the island to Cozumel, which is also an island in the Caribbean coast of Mexico, held a meeting. And
2: actually, Cozumel is actually rather nicer than Cancun. if. Fantastic,
3: fantastic place. And (laughs) actually, I think they met a few times there in Cozumel and, um, and they had a meeting there. So Mexico has always been doing that balance, right, knowing that they can get on a fight with the US, but at the same time, you know, making their point, their stance and showing that they are allies with the Cuban regime.
2: And coming back to today, when you think of sort of more broadly among Latin American leaders, do do they think this summit by President Biden is entirely politically motivated and to do with the US midterms? Or do you think they give him some benefit of the doubt that he wants to support integration across the region? I think it's a bit
3: confusing, the message that the US is sending, because obviously it's nice to be invited, but we haven't seen a strong agenda so far. There were, uh, we reported, you know, the interest of the White House to focus on trade, but you need deliverables, right? One of the reasons why the the Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, didn't want to go to LA had nothing to do with Cuba, obviously, but because of his internal reasons. And he is fighting a very tough uh, re-election campaign. And his point was, what it is for me to go to L.A., which is 12 hours away from Brasilia, to meet with Biden, who never pick up the phone and talk to me uh, until now. And we're not going to get anything but, uh, you know, a Photoshop. Um, So the region expects, uh, you know, more concrete steps and not just to be you know, lectured about migration, basically.
2: You and I were in, I mean, I was in Mexico with you a couple of weeks ago and we talked about this, you know, if you, when you don't spend time there, you don't realise quite how... Uh, strange in some ways the President AMLO is. You know, he's not a sort of tradition. He's a populist, but he's not traditionally left wing. He had a very tight fiscal policy, didn't spend a lot during COVID. Uh, He's very dedicated to these kind of big projects, quite old fashioned projects, like building a big new uh, petrol refinery. Do you think the Americans even sort of know what to make of AMLO, uh, or, or, or do they understand what makes his government tick? Or does anyone understand what makes his government tick?
3: I think, you know, they do in a way, um, in the sense of uh, they have been very respectful, to be honest, of uh, of Mexico's autonomy. And that's something that uh, even AMLO recognized, and he is very um, grateful for. Uh, he always talk about this, and this is very important to any Mexican president, right? The the the, the appearance of negotiating as a as as peers, and not uh, not as uh, being imposed uh, by the U.S., right? Uh, now it's a very difficult negotiation because, uh, in a way, for the U.S., uh, the only thing that matters right now is migration and especially not having a migration crisis during the midterm. So uh, that, you know, on one side um, prevents the development of other projects, uh, but at the same time gives Hamlo more leeway to play his own cards, right? Knowing that by containing migration, uh, the Americans will be happy.
2: I mean, if we step back, the other thing that we probably talked about even more when we were in Mexico was not anything to do with the summit, with anything that's going to happen in in, uh, Los Angeles, but what's happening in Washington and precisely what's happening inside the Federal Reserve. I mean, this historically, a period of rising U.S. interest rates has been bad news for many countries in Latin America. And certainly we saw in the 80s and in the mid-90s when the U.S. was increasing interest rates, making money more expensive. It was a lot of countries in Latin America that ended up paying a heavy price for that. So is that, you know, how worried are people in Mexico and around the region about that possibility now?
3: Of course, uh, you know, here something very interesting happened, which is the Latin American central banks were the first ones to move. Brazil started to increase its interest rates um, in March last year, so and the tightening cycle has been very aggressive so far. So by the time the Fed this year started to move, Latin America already created a cushion that, you know, you can see basically in stronger exchange rates. Uh, that, at, you know, at the same time prevented the capital outflows that tend to generate those crises um, as we saw in the past. Now, to me, the answer here, the main point is how far the Fed is ready to go. I think if we, if the tightening cycle in the U.S. is something reasonable and we start to see inflation coming down even, not, even if it's not getting to 2% anytime soon, uh, Latin America will be Uh, in a safer safer place than you have imagined um, considering the scope of this Mm. cycle.
2: No, and that's interesting. To be, it may not have crossed people's radar that actually the, the, the many of the the major central banks in Latin America, certainly Mexico, uh, had raised interest rates long before the Fed, so in the head, we're ahead of the game uh, when we spend our time criticizing the Fed for having got behind the curve. So finally, JP, I mean, you've you know you've been around the block a few times, if I may say that you've seen some of these summits come and go. Do you think it's salv- salvageable? Do you think that uh, the Mexican president in the end will go to L.A.? What do you think?
3: He may not go. I mean, it's funny. He said, you know, he may decide next week on the spot and he's not very far from <laughs> L.A. Uh,
2: so he So he's joked. bought a flexible ticket, we think, yeah, he maybe, even about, his staff may know, have done.
3: He even joke about flying to Tijuana and taking a car. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I think it's salvageable in the sense of it's going to happen. The president will be there. If AMLO doesn't go, it will be mostly his mistake or his, you know, he will be losing out, I think, in the end, if everybody else go. I don't think we're going to see a lot of deliverables. Um, that's the main thing. But we're going to have a meeting. We're going to have uh, a photo op and you know, some bilaterals. And that's always interesting.
2: And well, it certainly goes along with the long tradition of, of photo ops at these, of these summits, but not a lot of deliverables. Well, for those people who are waiting in tenterhooks to see how this Summit of the Americas goes down, we will potentially be talking to Maya uh, from L.A. Uh, next week. But uh, Juan Pablo Spinetta, thank you very much.
0: Thank you.
2: Now, another person I caught up with in Davos the other day was Sven Smit, the director and chair of the McKinsey Global Institute. Now, the Institute puts out reports which usually draw on enormous amounts of data and experience to say something interesting about the world. And they've just published a big one about human capital and the value of experience. It's based on the careers of four million workers in several countries. Now, human capital is one of those phrases that politicians talk about a lot. I started by asking Sven what was so special about this report.
5: We looked at how much of that skill is also built inside the job, called through the accumulation of experience. And what we find is that about half of the human capital, which is two-thirds of the human's wealth creation, is actually coming from experience, which is basically what you get after you're born and your endowment of birth.
2: But so it's lifetime earnings is what yeah, you so we So We took
5: it as an approximation. So basically you look at how much does somebody make in his total life, and if you take, you come in, and that would be your starting salary, let's say continued, with no additional experience, no additional job gains or something like that. You would be at half of what you would make as what you gain through experience. And the, we're not the earnings is a proxy for that capital. It's not the fundamental metric. This is the one that we found it best to measure it.
2: And just to go back a little bit, so what were you you using uh, to draw these conclusions? What data did you use?
5: We used 20 years of profiles, big data, 4 million people's profiles from different countries, uh, US, India, and we basically knew what people had as formal education, what they got as their starting salaries, and how they then progressed for 20 years through their jobs, and where they then ended up. And we followed their job moves inside the companies that they worked at, and also rotating to other companies and potentially coming back if you want. And so we learned not only that experience was the half, but there were a few other surprising results. One thing that surprised me probably the most is that the increase in human capital due to experience is the most for the people who have the least uh, incoming. So the progression to experience is the highest for counter workers, stonemasons, Crafts people. So, if you don't
2: people. have a lot of formal education, you've got you can have a much you, you steeper accumulation you, of skills.
5: Yeah. And and so, somehow they make more steps. Whereas if you come in as a dentist, you stay a dentist. <laughs> and then the, the second surprise for us was there is a group of people about a third in the US, a quarter in India, if you take that spectrum, that just moves more. So they they accumulate their experience faster by going from job to job inside the company sometimes rotating through other companies. And as a result, they have a much faster experience gain, which I think is also draws an implication for what companies need to do in terms of how they develop their people.
2: Yeah I mean it's interesting so McKinsey they ov- obviously your clients are usually businesses and a lot of your reports tend to focus on lessons for businesses and to some extent and yeah. governments because you also yeah. work for governments but this was one that I read thinking actually it has a lot of takeaways for individuals you know what are the sort of broader lessons it sounds like you should move around a lot
5: yeah, I actually think these learnings are reciprocal for the individual and the companies because a company doesn't that doesn't allow their people to make steps and as a result, basically go in the deep end again and then learn again uh, doesn't help to further the human capital of their people. And as a result, they're not helping furthering their company. But if you are an individual and you say, I'm so kind of comfortable with what I'm doing, and you don't throw yourself in the deep end, or at least try to persuade your company that you work for to be thrown in the deep end again hmm. and pick up a next set of learnings, um, then you're basically also not making that development. So it's both the responsibility of mm-hmm. the companies to say we should be thinking about that because you know, it's easy for a company to say let's keep the person in the role they have because they do it well. But if you want to step up your own human capital, if you no, know, it would be on the balance sheet of a company, then the best way to manage the balance sheet is to keep moving the people to the next step where they again accumulate the next step of capital.
2: We're talking about what you can do as an individual or certainly as an employer to, to invest in yourself in a given company. But I guess one of the slightly even harder conclusions from this report is that you should be letting people go and work for other companies and other places. I mean, I'm someone who has moved around a lot, but I'm conscious now that I have people, uh, you know, as part of a big team at Bloomberg, you know, I don't, part of me wants to tell them, go and get new jobs. But as a business, we've not always been very comfortable with that
5: yeah so I'm not sure you should sort of proactively send people, <laughs> a, people away, but if the best thing for a person is to go, that doesn't mean they can't come back and in a way you should exp- if you can celebrate an experience gain that is relevant to the return, why would you not have that return and I do think there is a group of people that just feel more comfortable to go into an experience curve inside a single company and people that like that rotation and maybe even develop skills faster. But why would you then say you can't come back?
2: Although one of the awkward conclusions, I think if I'm reading right, that if you want to actually, if you want to maximize your income and not everybody wants to do that, then you are better off yeah, moving Boulder around.
5: Moves, Boulder moves inside the company and Boulder moves across are, for the individual, probably the best maximizing, at least for that pool that we looked at. It's not 80%, so it's not, it is a small group that actually is doing that.
2: We think a lot these days about social mobility. And this, in a way, is about micro-social mobility. Yeah. How do people move up through jobs? And you say, you know, it's actually... You're going to really struggle if you start off as a cashier. There's a li- probably a limit, or be very few people who will be able to rise right to the top of of an industry. Um, but if but you can do better by by moving and by uh, taking risks. I mean, obviously, a lot of people, less advantaged people, people with less education, will feel financially constrained from moving jobs, from from taking risks taking a job that they don't necessarily have the skills for so just from that social mobility perspective were there are there any conclusions here about how should we address training how should we make it easier for people to move around
5: well the first point i would make is when we say the experience gain for the cashier is bigger than for the dentist what is that actually so just if you look at it the cashier becomes departmental leader in a store and if they're really good they might even be store leader That's how far they, they might not become the CEO of the company, but that is two very big steps that a cashier can make if your starting point is a cashier. And I think we should think about how do we celebrate that? You can't only celebrate the person who came in from university and became the CEO. Why don't we also have narrative that this is significant progress and people make, as as we say, they gain 60% more than their incoming earnings. And that's not because they stay cashier. And you can take that from the counter to chef, from Mm sous-chef as you come in as a sous-chef and you become chef. It's these paths that have quite some range that we should celebrate. And it's not all high school, university, MBA, and so on. That's of course where the elites will spend their time uh, thinking. But I think for a large group of people, these steps are very important and we should find ways to celebrate them create narratives around them, and we should celebrate them equally than the, you know, Mm. somebody who became a CEO story. And then I think that will provide a little bit more context to people, because otherwise people say, I become a sous chef and that's what I am. (laughs) But the sous chef, many actually move up. Many move up and that's what this data suggests. Mm.
2: Sven fantastic, thank you very much. that's it for this episode of stefanomics we'll be back next week but in the meantime do please rate the show if you like it and check out the bloomberg terminal and news website for more economic news and views on the global economy you can also follow at economics on twitter this episode was produced by magnus henriksen with special thanks to maya averbuch juan pablo spinetto and sven smith mike sasso is executive producer of stefanomics and the head of bloomberg podcasts is francesca levy